Cast. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this episode of The Responsible Leadership Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Ramo Lordani. Dr. Lordani has a PhD in adult education with a focus on instructional design, adult learner needs, and characteristics, adult learning theories, critical thinking, and workplace learning accompanied by years of research experience working with diverse populations. He has held offices in various professional organizations and has been the lead researcher on several community-based projects to improve adult and community literacy, health, and vibrancy. His research has investigated adult learning as guided and informed by culture and power. Dr. Lordaney has over 60... Dr. Lordani has upwards of 60 research and practitioner conference presentations both in and beyond the United States, as well as being an invited lecturer at Penn State University, Duquesne University, and the University of Toronto. He has taught doctoral courses on adult learning theory, critical thinking, international and multicultural perspective, international and multicultural international and multicultural perspectives in post-secondary and adult education, teaching in the online environment, the adult learner, teaching in college, and instructional strategies in adult and higher education. Dr. Lordani maintains an active research agenda through his leadership in the Community-Based Research for Engagement and Education group, which is something that we're going to talk about quite a bit uh, through this podcast because I'm a member of that group as well. So with that, Join me in welcoming Dr. Lordani to the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Well, Dr. Lordani, thank you for being a guest on the Responsible Leadership Podcast today. Oh, thank you, Earl. It's great to be here. I have listened actually to a couple of yours and have been wondering when I would be so honored. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that uh, we're able to carve this uh, time out and, and have this discussion. Uh, full disclosure for the listeners, Dr. Lordani and I are great friends, and uh, we work together on a couple of projects that we're going to be talking about here moving forward. But before we get into those, Ramo, when you hear the term responsible leadership, what does that mean to somebody like you? Responsible leadership to me, especially in the work like in industry and the communities, to me, I would offer a culturally responsive community leadership understanding. Basically what that means is a perspective that fosters and cultivates a meaningful co-creation with those who you are leading to understand who they are, how to best connect with them, still maintaining your leadership capacity, of course, but awarenesses of differences in cultural recognition, revitalization, development, right? And then to engage with them, you understand that they could be part of a vulnerable population, a community, and this may be their chance to start improving their life's quality. So to me, uh, responsible leadership would be to understand who your direct reports or those you who are leading uh, are and engage with them and build a, a relationship with each of them. But that represents the reflective whole, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. And, uh, you know, again, uh, that, that is, that is such a great answer because I, I love everything that you said there about communities and, and the whole. And, and that's a lot of, uh, that's, that's the basis of a lot of the work that you do right now, right? Is, is taking care of communities and helping them become more whole, right? Yes, sir. 
And um, I heard a wonderful quote just last weekend. And it says, in leadership, in quotes now, encourages change, even pushes for it, especially when the status quo demeans people or fails to give them opportunities to employ fully their experience and their talents. And that is from a book out of Preskill and Brookfield from 2009, page four. And I just think that quote represents everything that I and Seabury are striving to do, especially when we think of those adults in these various vulnerable communities that really have never had a chance to fully actualize themselves as an adult, as a community leader, and so forth. And I think this just gives them the opportunity. And by doing that, we strengthen the overall community for prosperity and economic development. Mm, yeah, no, that, that is well said, well said. And, uh, you know, for listeners, uh, I mentioned this in the, in the bio, but again, as a reminder, Seabree uh, that you'll hear Ramo and I talk about here uh, is an acronym. It stands for Community-Based Research for Engagement and Education. And we'll give links to that a little bit later on in the show. Uh, but that is an organization that, that we work together in uh, trying to go into some of these communities and make some of these changes that, that Ramo's talking about. Uh, but again, before we really dive deep into Seabree, I'm really curious, uh, what got you kind of on this path? Like what made you feel so passionate about uh, adult learning and education? Great question. <laughs> uh, it's actually a twofold response, if you don't mind. Yeah. One goes way back. I mean, like a hundred years. Um, when uh, my ancestor, my great grandfather uh, had in his family had come over here and they were working in the mines and the steel mills. My family was mostly the mines at the time. So the leaders at that time, whether it was the mining bosses the elected officials or otherwise, they didn't understand cultural nuances of, of those immigrating to this area. And there was a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, especially in the mines, you know, miscommunication, people don't understand, or if they're given a dictatorial command to do something, they may have not have understood the bosses really never back then the leaders never explored anything further than they come show up then they work and then go home. Um, second thing about this passion, when I was, uh, managing in the steel industry, we had a, um, a really record producing turn going and halfway through the turn, the most senior uh, position on the line calls and asked to shut the line down. I was like, um, no. And he says that, you know, if you don't, your line's going to be down for a few hours. I was like, oh, so went ahead, shut the line down. We lost 40 some minutes in production, but we got back up running again as quickly as possible to change this, this role set out. But then I asked him, I says, you better have a really good reason of why we shut the line down. And he looked at me without wavering. He said, do you hear that sound? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's the bill. What, what? And then he says, um, have, there was a high pitch whine that I heard over top of everything. Have your mill right, uh, do a sonogram on the roll neck and you will find that it has a crack. Well, staring at him like, okay, yeah, right. Um, I called the millwright, and sure enough, when he did a sonogram and printed it out, there it was. There was a crack in the roll neck, a hairline crack. Hmm. And it would have exploded, you know, come apart, broke apart. But what that would have done is damaged the valve stands and other parts of the line. And I looked at him, I said, how did you know that? And he says, the sound. He said, I know what this line sounds like mm -hmm. as it is running in a normal sense. He said, and there was something that wasn't right. There was a high-pitched whine over top of it, and that wasn't right. And we had to look. And I, I was, like, really impressed. And I knew at that time I really needed to get into understanding 
um, what do you want to call people's knowledge, if you were, as opposed to privileged and technological. So we start looking at people's knowledge and we find that present in communities, like I said, in industry uh, and wherever else. That has to be considered to me to be a responsible leader. Mm. No, I love that story because it reminds me so much of, uh, uh, of my grandfather. My grandfather was a World War II vet, and as soon as he came out, uh, he got into kind of the, the fledgling um, heating and air conditioning business back then, and he was in it his entire life. And, and I was always impressed because he was a guy, you know, he uh, was from Gastonia, North Carolina. Uh, his mom died during childbirth. His dad had issues. Uh, he was raised by family. Uh, but you know, they didn't treat him very good cause he wasn't necessarily their kid. Uh, he ended up dropping out of, of school. I want to say in like third or fourth grade, something like that. And, you know, he lied about his age to go to world war two, uh, cause that's what people did back then. And, you know, by all accounts, like if you just hear his, his story, you think, oh, this is some, you know, kind of dumb redneck from the Appalachian mountains. Right. I can't tell you how many times I saw that guy on a work site be underestimated by an inspector and try to tell him that he was doing his job wrong. And he would just, without skipping a beat, he'd be like, uh, you know, sir, you need to go back to the regulation, turn to page six, chapter, blah, uh, verse three, paragraph, whatever. And I did it exactly the way the regulations show. And sure enough, they would pull it out and it was like verbatim. Right. Um, and, and, it's that institutional knowledge there that you're kind of talking about here that you, you, you can't teach somebody how to hear that sound. Right. Right. Agree. And you got to rely on, on their abilities. And I like that you tie that in responsible leadership because sometimes it's relying on that person, no matter what their degree said their or, or their, their formal education is what their knowledge base is. Right. And you will find that experiential knowledge, experiential learning plays very well into a person's ability to, to take care of a job, to make decisions, to troubleshoot. It's what they know of a situation, of an environment, of the equipment, the policies, whether it's quality or safety or production. Um, and they look towards wanting to do well okay they do not want to make a bad situation but sometimes they have to work through stuff and leadership means you give them the space not that they take advantage of it but you give them the space to think through something to problem solve one of the things that we do to engage people leaders whether it's community or otherwise but we do a critical self-reflection with them uh, this again, this is an adult educator. His name is Stephen Brookfield. And in his one book, or well, a couple books, but he talks about four items. And we do things like this with the leaders to help them critically self-reflect and to see who they are. One is uncovering and identifying their assumptions. Two is they check their assumptions. Why is it an assumption regarding a person, regarding some population or, or otherwise? Three is they consider multiple perspectives. And by that, Earl, I mean if I was standing facing you and I drew a six, you will not see a six, but you will see a nine. So there's perspectives, even though it's the same thing. And then four is you take informed action. So based on this um, ability to think through critically and reflect on who you are as a person and then as a leader, you more things become clear. So now you identify any inherent biases that you may have, no matter how put down you have them no matter how stuffed down you have them in yourself and then the other thing is you identify microaggressions what types of things that don't in quotes do not sit well with you in this environment regarding the various workers or volunteers as the case may be but these are the things that i help leaders come alongside and begin identifying one who they are as an individual 
Two, how does that implicate their ability to lead? Then three, how much do they grow in their leadership capacity? Mm. No, and I, I love that. I love that because all my listeners are kind of familiar with with what I refer to as the shields of the phalanx now. And basically, you just hit the, the first three shields we talk about. Uh, you are always on display, introspection and improvement, and build relationships and look out for your people. And and those were essentially the three things you hit there, right? Because the, the introspection and improvement, that that's something that I think most people think they do a fairly good job of, but they usually stop at the surface. And what I heard you talk about was we really need to dig deep into the foundational and, and the kind of the neuroscience behind why we view what we view the way we view it. Right. 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 I agree completely. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to get people to do. So like, you know, when, when you're, when you're working with these leaders, like what are some of the, I guess you could say tactics that you use? Well, you're right. And here's the thing is we have to understand that their demeanors, their ways of action will not change overnight. However old, they, how old they are, that's how long they have been formed in their current leadership practice. So whatever I do will not be immediately effective because you're looking to mold their demeanor, their comportment, their, in, in a sense, life's biography. So we'll have them sit down and we'll run through a couple scenarios. One, we'll have an icebreaker and we'll put some, um, one of the things that we do is identification through what they know. What that means is we'll have say like a half a dozen people come out wearing various hats, dressed in a certain way, okay? Mm -hmm. Then we have them publicly report out, okay, what? who is this person? Who do you think they are? And then we put that on a flip chart. And, you know, we'll go through the four, five, six, and then we'll come out and give a bio of who they are. And a lot of that does not, uh, is not similar to what the suggested characters were that uh, uh, suggested by the participants. Yep. And so they begin to see an immediate shift that, wait a minute, just because they wear like a ball cap and this and that does not mean that they act one way. Dude is actually a lawyer in a top law firm. Yeah. Yeah. And I was introduced that, uh, introduced that concept kind of early on in my Marine Corps career. Um, I remember, so, you know, some of my listeners heard this, any new listeners, the way it works in the Marines is really you, you have kind of two paths. You have what they call, uh, uh infantry, we refer to as grunt, uh, or you have, uh, pogue, personnel other than grunt, non-infantry, admin, computers, those sorts of things, right? Okay. And so if you're going infantry, you go through basic training and uh, boot camp, and then you go into the school of infantry, which is three months. And it's all very intensive land navigation, weapon training, that sort of stuff. But if you're a pogue, you go to what's called Marine combat training. And it's a bunch of infantry uh, personnel kind of giving you a watered down school of infantry experience. It's only about three weeks. Well, I remember uh, kind of what you're talking about there, Ramo. Uh, I'm sitting there and, and we were talking. Our CO was uh, given a class on, uh, uh, I can't remember exactly what it was now. I think it was nighttime maneuvers or something like that. And we got to talking uh, about this very thing. And uh, come to find out my uh, captain, commanding officer of the, the combat training battalion, an infantry officer, he got his law degree from, I think it was Yale. And we're all looking at him like, why? He's like, because I wanted nothing more than to be an infantry Marine. And, and those folks, right. It, it, you know, stereotypically like infantry, whether it's army Marines or whatever, they're kind of considered like the knuckle draggers and all that. But here's a guy with a law degree from Yale <laughs> as an infantry wow. officer. So you just, you just can't assume what, what somebody is by, by how they present. Right. Exactly, completely. And by those assumptions, we tend to see where mistakes are made, or I'm not going to say poor decisions, but let us say compromised decisions may be made by not understanding that very thing. We have, um, well, one of the theories that we go by is something called appreciative inquiry. 
And this is where we search as a leader. We search for the best of people in our organizations, in the field, in the communities. And then we look at the strengths field, opportunity, rich world around them, and then facilitate their growth, development, and ability to thrive in that, to be a positive contributor, whether it's their workplace or the community, then we it's not so much of, as a shift in like models of community improvement. But what we're looking at, Earl, is their overall perspective, a leader's perspective throughout the entire change process. See the wholeness in these people as part of a human system and and then inquire to that system's strengths, possibilities, and successes. And what that means is we understand that um, these various people come from different backgrounds, what we call their life's biography. We understand the strengths that they can bring. We leverage that, of course, but then we also see the possibilities to help them become stronger by improving where there is opportunities to grow. And the thing that we try to stay away from is deficit language. You know, always putting something uh, on a negative spin. So what we want to do is look at what they do bring, what we call the positive core, but then we capitalize and leverage their strengths and then help them build into a, a more um, of, I don't want to use a big word, but efficacious individual, meaning that they have the ability to continue growing, what we call continuous learning throughout their lifespan. Mm. No, I love that. I, I, I love that, that use of language there, right? So, you know, most of my listeners are, you know, kind of C-suite types and that sort of thing. And, and uh, I know a lot of folks are familiar with uh, John Miller's uh, book, uh, QBQ. Have you ever read QBQ? I have not read it, but I have talked with some people who have. Um, and I mean, there's just good information in there. I probably should read it. <laughs> Maybe over the Christmas break, I'll uh, do that. Uh, there you go. Well, in there, and I can never remember if it's in the book or if it was in an interview I heard with him afterwards, but he, he says the same thing you did. And he gives a, gives a really great example. And he says, you know, think about this for a second, folks. He said, you wake up in the morning and you're putting your shoes on and, and you say to yourself, man, I've got to go to work today. He goes, by saying, man, I've got to go to work today, that has kind of a negative connotation to it. It puts you in a bad mood. It makes you feel inconvenienced. It sets your day off on the wrong tone. He goes, now what happens if you wake up in the morning and you say, man, I get to go to work today. Because you're changing one letter in the whole sentence, the, the O to an E. Man, I get to go to work today. And that's got a much more positive connotation to it. Your your uh, your good vibes start right off the bat. You're a little bit more upbeat. Everything just starts off on a more positive footing. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what you're talking about there, right? Is is the language we use has an immense impact on our feelings and really how we interact with everybody else throughout the day, right? Exactly. And from from what I can remember, uh, Miller in that book. I guess, explores questions like who dropped the ball. I remember that explicitly mm-hmm. where it's again, a deficit language connotation. It causes harm. Whereas like, what are the reasons the ball was dropped? Yeah. And we begin to look and add it from a more, shall we say a collective sense and not just single out an individual or what we would call placing blame. But we tend to look, how can we address this? from a community, from a collective sense, thereby not putting anybody down, but celebrating that we can all grow from this by learning something. And then that, as Miller says, we are transformed. Our lives and our organizations are transformed. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And, and that is really, uh, so let's start talking about Seabree a little bit here. That's really where Seabree kind of, uh, came to fruition and, and, and our purpose as community-based research for engagement and education is, is really being able to take these things that you and I've been talking about into communities that are, are, you know, having issues, whether it's with numeracy, whether it's with literacy, whether it's with, you know, some of these other socioeconomic impacts, and start having these types of conversations, right? 
agree completely. Uh, as a general, the public, the region, as a general fact, do not really know the numbers associated with some topics. And let's, let's, let's break them out. One, we know that poverty anywhere in any community, no matter how minute, has a negative ripple effect throughout all the region. Now, even the affluent ones. We also know that through research by U.S. Department of Education, that elevated poverty levels are directly linked to low adult literacy. So with that in mind, let's think about this a minute. People with low literacy skills are twice as likely to be unemployed, three times as likely to be in poverty, four times as likely to be in poor health. Now, just as a side note, People in poor health who, who are not understanding how to be proactive, um, how to do doctor's visits, or to take an, uh, an active part in their treatment costs the entire region through elevated health care costs, insurance costs, and whatnot. And uh, the other one is they're eight times as likely to be incarcerated, which again brings additional cost. They want to break it down in cold, hard money. Well, it costs us as a society when people experience low adult literacy and in many situations, overwhelmingly, it is not the fault of the person, but some overarching practice, the school district they're from or societal uh, generational poverty, illiteracy and so forth. But we have to stand up and begin addressing that. And this is where Seabree comes in. Knowing the fact, knowing, well, the research says that 80% of the job openings by 2024 are going to be middle skill and higher. And those with adult, lower adult literacy are going to be struggling even further. Well, you call it, they call it the divide. They're going to fall further behind mainstream society if we do not stand up and get something done now. And that comes through responsible leadership. Yeah. And, and I think this is the thing that, that the country is kind of trying to come to grips with a little bit right now is, is how did we, how did these communities end up getting there? Uh, you know, folks want to kind of really have uh, uh, this discussion about critical race theory. And we can talk about how what's going on in most schools is not even remotely critical race theory. But the, the point of it is, is, what, what folks are trying to do is, is talk about these things where communities were, uh, by, by law, essentially made to be the way they are, uh, whether it is Native American community. I mean, when you look at these, at these numbers and you look at Native American communities, these sovereign nations, reservations, whatever word that you're familiar with, you know, they face some of the highest, uh, well, I guess, depending on how you look at it, some of the, uh, some of the highest rates of, of illiteracy, some of the, the, the highest rates of, of all of these things that you mentioned, unemployment, poverty, poor health, uh, and incarceration because of, let's just look at the historical context of how reservations were put together away from resources. Uh, I mean, literally, they were kind of given the land that nobody else wanted. But it, it, the same thing happened, you know, kind of in urban communities as well with, through practices like redlining and things like that. And going back to that understanding, that introspection piece, until we understand that, that the, these communities aren't the way they are because the people want to be that way, they're the way they are because that's basically the way that they were built to be. That's what we got to start to really fix in these communities, right? Exactly, Earl. And again, through that critical self-reflection, we can get at why people think of these communities the way they do. Just this fall, a report come out in all over the news that, and I'm quoting from WESA, the Pittsburgh's NPR news station, that banks made nearly $12 billion in home loans to Pittsburghers between 2007 and 2019, but only 6.8% of those loan dollars went to the city's minority residents. And then you take, break that down, it's about the same for Allegheny County, which is where Pittsburgh is, as a whole. 
I mean, think about that. We There is an established and recognized lead problem in various municipalities throughout the Pittsburgh region. And by banking practices such as this, it does not allow those who would be considered marginalized or redlining in and of itself, not giving a loan to people living in an environment that would not be able to make good on the loan, as it were. I know I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that basically, in a nutshell, is what's going on. <laughs> and by keeping populations in these what we call environmental justice communities, they are exposed to, exposed to such things as lead, let's say asbestos, let's look at cadmium, nickel, all kinds of stuff in the environment. Now, they were prosperous up until about the 70s, late 70s, early 1980s, when the steel industry collapsed. Now, once the steel industry collapsed, and we're looking at 40 years now, these populations have experienced poverty, poor quality of life and whatnot. And you know what's worse is the associated school districts are facing the same struggles. They are graduating 80, 90, 95%. But yet you're looking at maybe what, 32, 36% reading proficiency and maybe 18, 22% math proficiency. And you're graduating, you know, in the upper, like 90%. You're setting these poor uh, students up to fail. And then people's going to sit in more affluent societies are going to cast aspersions when they need to be coming together to collaborate and improve and strengthen these communities. So here is where Seabree lies. There is our, one of our goals is we want to help improve vulnerable communities through literacy and learning adult and community to be for them to be better civic participants, better community leaders and be an effective teacher of their children especially in pandemic and post-pandemic times when learning has gone online, we see a lot of opportunities, Earl, for our society to improve and grow. Mm. And there is where Seabree, that's where one of our core missions lies. It is helping these communities to improve, strengthen. They talk about economic development, but what they don't talk about is what it takes to compete for the jobs, remember, middle and high skill. So how do we strengthen the entire area, the region, so that everybody can compete? And then we have a stronger tax base. We have sustainable economic development. But it all starts with responsible leadership and recognizing the challenges that we must address. Mm. No, I love that. I love that. And, you know, one of the things I pride myself with this podcast on is only about 65% of my listeners are actually based in the U.S. The rest are spread around the globe. And so we get a fairly uh, fairly decent international audience here. And you and I have been talking about these things really kind of from an American perspective, but these same things hold up just as true in the UK and Australia, even in Canada uh, and places like that. And even in, in Southeast Asia, we, we run into these, these same things, even in those communities, right? You're exactly right. It's human nature, uh, human efficacy, human growth. Last week I was uh, presenting guest lecturing at a doctoral course for an American university. And one of the participants in the course is from Cameroon. And we were talking about issues very similar to this and the stories that he, that he told of his community had the same things that leaders, many of them were looking to, how shall we say, seek personal gain and enrichment and not really focusing on the needs and demands of the community of themselves. Whether it was their, we call them NGOs, uh, non-governmental organizations, but the volunteer organizations or community organizations, we would call them nonprofits. They were seeking to gain off of the vulnerable population's strife and struggles. Again, reflecting to me, poor leadership, poor focus, 
Again, you go back to who are you as a person and are you able to lead transformatively, responsibly, culturally? Can you do that? And that's where we help leaders to come to an understanding of who they are. And several of your podcasts that I've listened to over the past weeks or so, these things came out, these very issues come out. And I'm glad to hear more and more of us are starting to really push the envelope on this. Well, yeah. And, you know, and I think one of the things that has really come out, you know, with the interviews that I've done, especially over, let's say, the past six months to a year, is, as you mentioned, the pandemic. The pandemic is really, in some ways, it's even the playing field a little bit. But in other ways, it's kind of tilted the table even more so against these communities. And and when I say that, you know, yes, things have went online. But as you mentioned, with literacy and just access, right? Not everybody had the the tech, uh, technology, uh, technological literacy to be able to set up for online classrooms. They didn't have the access to computers, didn't have the access to Internet to do it. But in those that did, we saw a little bit more... Uh, a little bit more engagement and a little bit more uh, social interaction uh, where, where they were able to get in there. Right. Exactly. Yes. And you're correct. Cause even in the more, as we call them affluence communities, there were issues with not getting online. They had that ability, but we were seeing issues where parents were struggling in the online, helping their child in the online learning community. They didn't understand what large group was or asynchronous instruction, synchronous instruction, and so forth. They did not know of that, even though it has been around for like 20 plus years, this online. And we think that we have opportunities to really strengthen all of society if they can just admit it. And then in the in the vault, more vulnerable, impoverished communities, you think about them, even though they may have internet available in the area, what's the cost of the internet? Yep. There are many areas I know in Pittsburgh, they're actually looking to do like a citywide internet and tap in. Not, uh, to me, I don't know the costs that will be associated with that, but it seems to me you know a decent step forward. But the other thing we keep hearing is the internet divide, the digital divide. And I've heard a lot of criticisms of it, but it is still very prevalent in many settings. Yeah. That the, they don't have it. Yeah. No. And, well, and, and this was another one. Um, i trying to remember the, the gentleman I was speaking with where we were talking about this. I think it was actually an after, uh, after show comments that didn't make it into a podcast, but he had mentioned. Like, as you mentioned, even though, even in these affluent neighborhoods, right, there's still some of these issues that show up there. We think, you know, like a Beverly Hills or something where they don't have to deal with all these things. But he said, what was interesting when things started turning online is what they noticed was, especially with, you know, kind of the, the younger generation, that we, we look at them as very technologically advanced, very technologically literate. But what we don't really pay attention to the fact is, is like 90 some percent of that interaction is on their smartphone. It's not on their laptop. It's not on uh, uh, even an iPad so much anymore. And you get these kids to do TikTok videos or all that, and they're wizards at it. But you put them in a laptop and ask them to connect to a learning platform and ask them to do tests online, ask them to do these things. That's just not what they do. It's not in their skill set. And they go from looking like technological geniuses to to looking like they've never seen a computer before. And so these divides can show up in a lot of different ways, right? Exactly. Uh, in a simple walkthrough on a street in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a couple of things stood out. One is a parking meter. Now, although it allows for coins to be dropped at this point, it's hard to see it. What stands out most of all are QR codes or using your smartphone in a PayPal account or something similar to that to pay for your parking spot. You enter your license plate. You put some form of payment in through your smartphone or tablet. And for those who have not had this ability, 
were you know socialized, who learned about it, they're going to their car is going to get towed. It's happened already. Right. Then the second thing I noticed is a lot of businesses, service, fast food, name it. They want you when they're hiring. They will have a a uh, code for you to text to a number, and then you will get some type of a form or further directions from that. And from interviews of people in the uh, vulnerable neighborhoods, we have seen where this is just messing them up. And already, where the literacy rate is in this country alone, one in four to five people cannot complete a form, an application. Now we're asking them to do it digitally, which only compounds the issues. So they're, again, very basic elements of society, getting a job become complicated for many people because they do not have what we would call the community literacy to understand that. And again, that's one of the, the projects that Seabury focuses on is this community literacy understanding. And we do that by leveraging stakeholders and so forth. Okay. Yeah. So let's, um, let, let's talk about that real quick. So um, we, we've talked a lot about what Seabree can do, and, and I'm, I'm hoping that there are some community leaders here that are, are sitting there and be like, hey, uh, I, I'm going to reach out to Seabree because uh, I think that they can really help in my community, but I'm not really sure how. We talked about why and the what they can do. What are some of the services, if you will, that Seabree can provide to a community? A few things. One, we can come alongside existing uh, community organizations and help one develop their staff to understand culturally responsive community leadership or what we call responsible leadership. We can conduct a qualitative research with the organizations, people, as well as the folks in the vulnerable communities, the communities that these organizations are serving. We can get a hands on feel of what is going on. What do these people consider important? What do they see as their needs? So we can conduct that type of a research through various methods and get a better understanding, a more integrative understanding of what is actually needed to better serve and build this community. That is one of the things we can do. We can conduct the professional development for teachers, for those in the K through 12, uh, looking at what's called culturally and linguistically diverse learners and what's uh, biography-driven instruction, we can come alongside educational organizations, including community colleges, trade schools, alternative high schools, universities, and work with them to improve their ability to engage with culturally and linguistically diverse populations, thereby improving academic achievement. Uh, and then in the communities, building adult and community literacy. So you have like a Fortune 5 company coming to your area, but you have vulnerable populations, low adult literacy. Through these tactics, the playing field, as you said earlier, becomes more leveled because they have the ability to successfully compete for these jobs. And what does that mean? It means that they, you know, obviously pay better taxes. They're on the tax rolls. Um, they are in a better quality of life situation. So Seabree can help come in and do those types of things with uh, communities, industry, uh, educational organizations, and so forth. That is what we uh, can help better position people to improve in. Mm. Yeah, no, I love it. And one of the other things, listeners, uh, that Seabree is doing, and, and uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this discussion so far, uh, because Ramo and I are going to be uh, co-hosting uh, a new podcast coming up that is going to be a, a product of Seabree uh, titled We the Educators. And our tagline is uh, by educators, for educators, or excuse me, I think I got that backwards. By educators, for educators, and of educators. There we go. Um, and what did we, we settled end of January is when that's going to launch, right? 
Yes, around January 20th, that Thursday, is when uh, the Seabreeze uh, Educator podcast will launch. And we'll be doing it as Seabree members, but we'll also bring on people, other experts in the field, and have a discussion with them, a conversation about what their reality is. Again, whether it's in the community, in pre-K through 12, alternative, higher ed, sec- post-secondary education, um, I think I mentioned the community. So it's sure. educators of all sense. Oh, we also include like special education um, and issues, opportunities for growth in that area. And I think these are the kinds of components that we want to bring to the podcast to help people understand who we are as a community, as a nation. And even in other countries, they can pick up on what we're doing, our strategies, and maybe grow by that. So, yeah, that's what we're aiming to do. Yeah, and, and I'm excited to be a part of this. We'll, we're going to have, as, as Raymond mentioned, we're going to have a lot of great guests come on, cover a lot of great topics. And, you know, whether you're an educator yourself, whether you got kind of uh, baptismal by fire in, in home education because of the pandemic, uh, we're going to have guests on there. They're going to help you be able to reach your learners uh, a lot easier and, and uh, more successfully. So uh, I will be kind of promoting that a little bit more on here. Uh, so listeners, you'll get used to hearing me talk about We the Educators podcast. And uh, I'll be having uh, the, the links and the info so you can go and sign up and subscribe for that as well. Because I think this is going to be a podcast that really... Uh, it's going to be able to make a big difference in communities uh, for a lot of people. So uh, really looking forward to that. Um, Ramo, yes. go, yeah, go uh, ahead. Just to add to that, and remember, even like in hospitals, you have nursing supervisors uh, and other like phlebotomy, respiratory, uh, the labs. Even if you're a supervisor, a manager, or an executive administrator, you still teach throughout the responsibility of your position. You still educate, even though we probably do not call it that, but education is part of your position. So even people in executive management, middle management, supervisory positions can stand to benefit because we will have those types of things being covered in various podcasts as well. A hundred percent. Very well said. And, you know, listeners, you've, you've heard me say it on here a hundred times before, and I'll probably say it a hundred again. You know, that's one of the biggest pieces of being a responsible leader is being able to train, educate and encourage uh, your successor. You know, that that's uh, succession planning requires you to be a good educator. And this podcast will help supplement uh, supplement those skill sets as well. So very well said, Ramo. Um yeah, no, I, I love it. This has been a great conversation. I can't believe we're already uh, sitting at about 45 minutes or so. Before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover yet uh, that you want to leave listeners with? Yeah, I think one major thing is, again, take a look at your assumptions. How can you grow today? How can you grow tomorrow? Seabree isn't just about coming alongside, but helping people to incorporate this lifelong learning culture into their lives. Uh, you tune into the Seabree, We the Educators podcast. We will be talking about lifelong learning culture. To go from a culture of survival, which is taking its toll on the, our entire nation, to be able to have lifelong learning where we can address more systemic, larger, what we call contradictions like childhood obesity, um, childhood diabetes, asthma, stuff like that. Once we establish a culture of lifelong learning, let us go ahead and begin to address and then hopefully mitigate these very real tragic issues that exist within our society. And then I also want to leave people a shout out that um, to visit our website, www.cbreeresearch.com. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Seabree underscore research. And we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. Look us up, like our page, give us a shout. And more importantly, what I really want to leave people with is we want to hear from you. We alone do not have the answers. That can only come through all of us. We have skills, knowledge, abilities, perspectives. And Seabree wants to hear these things from all of y'all. So, Earl, I invite your listeners to pop on by, pop into our website. Uh, we also have um, our projects website of the vulnerable communities here in the Mon Valley of Pittsburgh. Look us up and give us a shout. What's on your mind? I love it. I love it. Well, again, listeners, uh, you know that all that stuff's going to be in the show notes. Uh, you've been spending some time with uh, myself and Dr. Ramo Lordani. Uh, Ramo, I really appreciate you being here with us and having this great conversation and doing the work that you do. So thank you very much and uh, keep at it, my friend. Uh, Earl, I thank you very much, my friend. You've been wonderful. I hope to at least to have some takeaway for people and I appreciate the opportunity, brother. I appreciate it and thank you. All right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that... I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Are you a fan of classic cinema or a young person who wants to discover the best films of all time? Do these legendary movies still hold up? On the Generation Film Podcast, two guys who grew up when movies dominated the culture share a great film with a panel of young movie lovers and see how it plays for today's generation. We discuss changes in storytelling, styles, representation, and the making of each film, its initial reception, and how its meaning has changed over the years. Join us as we explore cinema classics across generations on Generation Film. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric Acid. Electric acid.